Hello, I'm Nina Law. And I'm Max Lydia. We're residents of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and welcome to the History of Madness podcast. In this podcast, we will be telling fascinating stories from the history of psychiatry. In this episode, we will be telling the story of the discovery of lithium as a treatment for mania. My primary source for this episode was the book Lithium, A Doctor, A Drug, and a Breakthrough by Walter E. Brown. Check it out if you're interested and want to learn more about lithium. Let me take you back in time to 1948 to an asylum in Melbourne, Australia. W.B. is a 51-year-old male who had been picked up by police and was eventually taken to the Bundora Psychiatric Hospital back in 1943. On admission, he was noted to be excited, restless, and garrulous shows flight of ideas and is irrational in speech. He has some idea that birds or beasts can bring messages and says he hears the voice of his deceased father. For the next five years, WB was in a state of chronic mania. His psychiatrist, John Cade, wrote that he was dirty and destructive, both day and night, a rubbish gatherer and petty pilferer, frequently impulsive. Occasionally, his energy finds outlet in mowing the lawn. He had long been regarded as the most troublesome patient in the ward, and he was thought to have to remain there for the rest of his life. After receiving a course of ECT, WB improved enough to be discharged from the hospital, but the improvement was temporary. After a few months, he was back to his usual state of mania and had to be taken to the hospital again after having been a great nuisance in the neighborhood. On March 29, 1948, WB started treatment on lithium citrate, 1,200 milligrams, three times a day. According to John Cade's published vignette of WB, in three weeks, he had settled down and was enjoying the unaccustomed surroundings of the convalescence ward. As he had been ill so long and confined to a chronic ward, he found normal surroundings and liberty strange at first. On May 1st, 1968, John Cade wrote in his case files that WB had shown remarkable improvement. He now appears quite normal, a diffident, pleasant, energetic little man. On July 9th, WB was discharged indefinitely and was reportedly back working at his old job. WB was the first patient to be treated with lithium and his psychiatrist, John Cade, was the one who discovered lithium as a treatment for mania. Wow, that's amazing. paper on lithium was published in 1949, but was not widely used until 1970. To put that into perspective, Thorazine, the first antipsychotic, came out in 1952, and the first antidepressant, the tricyclic antidepressant in Mipramine, came out in 1959. Even today, lithium remains one of the most effective tools in our toolbox to treat mania. What has your experience been like with lithium, Max? Um, I think, I mean, generally very positive. And I mean, the right patient population that takes effect pretty quickly. It's relatively easy to dose. You just need to make sure you're in the right, like, 
therapeutic level as far as blood levels. Um, but for the patients that it works for, it really works really, really well for. Yeah, and we're fortunate enough that our attendings have taught us to be comfortable with lithium and have advocated its use, even though there are a lot of different options today, including the different mood stabilizers and the second generation antipsychotics. But lithium remains the gold standard. I remember my first time starting lithium on a patient with first episode mania and just seeing the dramatic difference it can make in the course of three days. It definitely made me a believer. Yeah, I think I've had similar experiences. When I'm talking to my patients about starting lithium, their reaction is usually, wait, isn't that something in a battery? <laughs> and what I usually tell them is, well, lithium is a naturally occurring element. You can find it on the periodic table. Uh, lithium was in 7-Up at mm. some point. It was in mineral springs that people would go to to soak in. Uh, there are industrial applications like lithium batteries. Mm -hmm. Lithium was first used for medical purposes in the 1840s. It was found in the blood of gouty patients. And then there came this theory that uric acid was a cause of various medical ailments. And because lithium could dissolve uric acid, it became a sort of cure-all. And people would flock to resort towns to soak in these mineral springs containing lithium. Um, and if you've taken Psychology 101, you might have heard of the James Lange theory of emotion. Carl Lange is the Lange half of James Lange, and this is the theory that if you see a bear, you first experience the physiological fight-or-flight response, increased heart rate, sweating, and then the emotional response of fear. So Carl Lange believed that lithium could be used to treat depression. And Carl Lange happened to have a younger brother who ran an asylum. So his brother started giving lithium to the patients there. So that was... In the 1800s? Yeah, that Jeez. was pretty much, you know, the first time patients started receiving lithium huh. for psychiatric purposes. That makes me so sad that it took that long to catch on. So then our story jumps to the 1940s when there was a lithium table salt scare. Oh no. You know how cardiologists recommend to people with cardiovascular disease to restrict their sodium intake? Yeah, absolutely. So people were starting to recommend that back in the day. But as you know, patients like their salty food. Yes, I, same as today. And lithium had a salty taste. So the idea at the time was to use lithium as a table salt alternative, which you can imagine was disastrous because of lithium's neurotherapeutic index. Right, and the, the therapeutic index is the, the blood level at which lithium has its beneficial effect. Whereas if you go above that narrow range of blood levels, you start to get toxicity. So people were really dumping that lithium on that food. Oh no. There were reports of seizure and death, and this was widely publicized at the time, uh, scaring people away from the use of lithium. And this lithium scare was part of what set back the use of lithium for mania. And not to mention by the late 19th century, the theory that uric acid was causing these various medical ailments had fallen out of favor. Okay. For a good reason. Right. So when John Cade came out with his paper on lithium for the treatment of mania, 
1949, that was a terrible time to come out with a paper on lithium. I can imagine. So John Cade was born in 1912 in Victoria, Australia. His father, David Cade, after serving in World War I, took a position with Victoria's Mental Hygiene Service and was an asylum doctor for 25 years. So John Cade grew up on the grounds of an asylum. And I, I imagine he was, he saw the patients growing up and was heavily influenced by his father's occupation. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate. My dad was a surgeon, so I would go on weekend rounds with him starting when I was very young. And that definitely was a huge influence on me becoming a physician. In 1929... John Cade starts studying medicine at the University of Melbourne, and after a brief stint in pediatrics, decided to do a residency in psychiatry. He followed his father's footsteps and joined Victoria's Mental Hygiene Service in 1936. As a young doctor, he was interested in research, but before he could do much extensive research, World War II broke out. He became a general medical officer in the Australian Imperial Force and headed to Malaya, now Malaysia. In 1942, the British surrendered Singapore to the Japanese, who won an all-out victory. Cade became a prisoner of war at the infamous Changji prisoner of war camp, which was notorious for using its prisoners as laborers. He was at a prisoner of war camp for three and a half years. Food was so tightly rationed and Cade became malnourished. When the war ended, Cade weighed only 90 pounds, but he was bustling with research ideas. He became convinced by his time at the prisoner of war camp that there was a biological basis with psychiatric illness and wanted to find effective biological treatments. At the time, bipolar disorder could only be treated by ECT and heavy sedatives. Bipolar patients wandered around asylums long-term, never completely restored. Wow, that's so sad. In 1946, John Cade returned as a war hero and started working at the Victoria Mental Health Service again as a medical director now of Bundura Repatriation Mental Hospital. And at the time, his laboratory was very primitive. It was literally a kitchen in the basement. And he freaked his wife out by keeping patient's urine on top of the refrigerator. (laughs) I can't say I would be a big fan of that either. Right. The logic behind John Kay's experiments were kind of unclear. So at the time, he thought there had to be something in the urine of bipolar patients that was causing their mania. So he collected urine from patients with mania and injected rats with the urine to see how much of it would kill them. And then he discovered that uric acid was one of the components of urine. And then he tried to dissolve uric acid with lithium. And then he injected the rats with lithium and discovered that the rats became sedated and thought, well, maybe this is a good treatment for mania. You know, there, there are several different jumps in logic there. Um, but he, this, this guy was dedicated to his research. When he thought that lithium might be a potential cure, he decided to try that out on himself. 
So this this freaked his wife out even more than the patient's urine on top of the fridge. And it was pretty extraordinary how he managed to land on exactly the right dosing that was therapeutic, but also not toxic. In hindsight, those rats were actually dying from lithium toxicity. That's why they were sedated. Oh my god. So, but somehow it all worked out. (laughs) That's good. So this brings us back to WB, the patient at Bandura Psychiatric Hospital. John Kate's first patient was thought to be a hopeless case, thought doomed to remain on a psych ward for the rest of his life. In his 1949 paper, John Cade described 10 patients he treated with lithium, three with chronic mania, and seven with recurrent mania, all of whom showed dramatic improvement within a week or two. And for the rest of his life, John Cade would describe WB as a success story. But the truth was more complicated. WB was not compliant with lithium due to side effects of nausea and continued to have recurrent mania. And John Cade continued to increase his lithium dosage Um, And WB eventually died in 1950 of presumed lithium toxicity. Mm. Um, So I'm curious, do you think Cade was was lucky or do you think it was something about him that enabled him to make this discovery? So John Cade would often say that he was, quote, a prospector who had stumbled upon a nugget. Mm. And I think there's a kernel of truth to that because there wasn't a very clear logic to his series of experimentations with lithium and there was definitely an element of luck that what he tried just happened to work um because his reasoning behind it wasn't all correct but at the same time i think that who he was as a person was essential to the discovery of lithium because John Cade had this creative mind and he was passionate and driven when it came to research. He was able to make those leaps and see overall what needed to be done. He, he was an observant person throughout his life. He, despite being in this dingy little basement, he carried forth with this research. He showed incredible bravery in trying that lithium on himself, which, I don't know, a lot of people wouldn't have done. Yeah, I agree. Wow, that that's really highlights how impressive a discovery this was. Why do you, and then, so this was in the 40s. Why do you think it took until the 70s for this to catch on? Well, first of all, it came out in 1949 after the toxicity scare. So I think the toxicity caused people to be wary of using it in clinical practice. Also, lithium is a naturally occurring element. It can't be patented. Mm. Shortly after John Cade's paper came out in 1949, Thorazine and amipramine came to market in the 1950s. So, and that was what the pharmaceutical companies pushed and marketed. And antipsychotics were effective for mania as well, and sometimes even quicker than lithium was. So people thought, why use this alternative that could cause toxicity? That makes sense. Yeah. It wasn't until later that it was discovered that lithium could be used as a maintenance treatment for bipolar disorder. I see. Kate himself forbade the use of lithium due to toxicity. 
He stopped doing research on lithium after his paper came out. He just put his research out there and never went back to it. Wow. Which kind of unimaginable these days. But he was ready to move on to different topics. And then it was up to other people to take up the helm of lithium research. The next great advancement was the advent of blood tests for toxicity levels. John mm. H. Talbot was not a psychiatrist, but he was renowned for his research on gout and arthritis. He found a way to measure serum lithium levels in studying lithium as a salt substitute. And then Edward Trotner at the University of Melbourne first did a study using lithium for mania while measuring blood levels in 1951 and found that lithium was, quote, very beneficial for mania. So this is when the next great big character in our story comes along, Mogen Sko, who was a Danish psychiatrist and other than John Cade, probably the most influential in the advancement of lithium as a treatment for mania. So Mogen Sko had a lot of similarities to John Cade. His father was also a psychiatrist who oh, ran mental hospitals, and he grew up on the grounds of an asylum, similar to John Cade. Huh. And Sko had a family history of bipolar disorder, so a lot of different relatives suffered from bipolar disorder, and his father was passionate about finding a cure wow. for it. And when ECT, that's electroconvulsive therapy, came out, he was full of hope that it would be what cured bipolar disorder. So Mogan Sko himself had a younger brother who had these periodic bouts of depression that required yearly hospitalization and ECT helped, but then uh, inevitably his condition would always recur. So it became one of his drives to find a cure. In 1952, he was working at our house university psychiatric clinic in Riskov, Denmark, and this was a point, a point in time when Mogen Sko had become disillusioned with the field of psychiatry because a lot of the focus at the time was on psychotherapy and not as much on biological treatments. But for Mogen Sko, he could see that as useful as psychotherapy was, it wasn't going to treat severe mental illness and psychotic disorders. Right. By itself. And he wondered, maybe I'm not cut out for a field of psychiatry. Maybe mm-hmm. I should just transfer to internal medicine. Huh. Wow. And that is when Eric Stromgen, who was the head of our house university psychiatric clinic, he'd read the Kate article and suggested to Mogan Sko that he could do a randomized control trial of lithium mm-hmm. in mania. And this was during a time when randomized control trials were just being developed and introduced into the field of psychiatry. So Mogan Sko did the, one of the first, if not the first, randomized control trial in the field of psychiatry. He would flip a coin to randomize patients to either lithium or placebo. In 1954, he published the results in a British journal and the randomized control trial he did convinced him of the anti-manic effects of lithium. Mm. And for the rest of his life, he was a tireless 
and fierce advocate for the use of lithium. He would publish whenever he could, attend conferences to spread the word, and he became this go-to man when it came to lithium. He's like an evangelist for lithium. Yes, and this is at a time when few people were paying attention to lithium. Hmm. But he did manage to slowly and steadily spread the word, and psychiatrists around the world were starting to, a few psychiatrists here and there, were starting to experiment with lithium on their patients. And one of these psychiatrists was Danish psychiatrist Paul Christian Bostrup. Um, so he discovered independently of Sko, who had also made this ob- observation that lithium could be used as a maintenance therapy for bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. So this was the beginning of a long collaboration between Bostrup and SCO. The trials were conducted at Bastrop's Psychiatric Hospital in Copenhagen and went on for 6.5 years using lithium as a maintenance drug and was finally published in 1967. After this paper was published, SCO went around to conferences advocating for lithium. At one of these conferences, a prominent British psychiatrist from Maudsley Hospital in London named Michael Shepard heard Sko talk hmm. and immediately formed a negative impression of Mogan Sko because huh. uh, Sko had happened to talk about his younger brother and his bouts of depression oh. and how that convinced him because he used the lithium on his younger brother and saw these results that this was a way to go. And Shepard labeled Sko a quote, believer mm. who could not maintain objectivity. And he did make some valid criticisms about the research because SCO did not do a randomized control trial when it came to lithium as a maintenance therapy. So a lot of his initial criticisms were valid, although the personal attacks were unwarranted. Mm. And Shepard was very prominent in his field. He was famous for advocating for strict randomized control trials with double blinding and placebos. And so this led to a long feud between Sko and Shepard and Harry Blackwell, who he later recruited to his cause. So Sko's reasoning for why he didn't initially do a randomized control trial was Mm -hmm. that he thought it was unethical because he so strongly believed that lithium was a good maintenance therapy for bipolar disorder, if he kept that from some patients to create a placebo group, then that was unethically keeping it from them. Mogan Sko turned this over in his head, and he thought long and hard about this, and finally he decided he had to do a randomized control trial. Hmm. So with about 100 patients with either recurrent depression or manic depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, who had been in lithium treatment for a year or more, and then they were randomly allocated to either lithium treatment or discontinuation and switching to placebo. And he made sure to only continue that trial for as long as he could achieve statistical significance in the results. Mm. And that didn't take long. It it took less than six months. Wow. 
In this trial, 12 out of 22 of the bipolar patients on placebo had recurrences, and 0 out of 28 on lithium did. Wow. Yeah. And Michael Shepard never commented on these studies. (laughs) He was stubborn to the end. And unfortunately, that led to the delay of approval for lithium in the UK because of this feud. Wow. So this paper was published in 1970, this double-blind placebo randomized control trial for maintenance therapy that finally settled the debate. Right. And it was in 1970 that lithium gained FDA approval in the United States to be released in the marketplace. All right. Wow, that's an incredible journey. Yeah. And it's, it's crazy to think about, like, it being so resisted when today, even today, it's one of our most effective medicines for bipolar. In 1970, the United States became the 50th country to approve lithium to the marketplace. And there are various reasons for this. In the United States, psychoanalysis was dominant until well into the 1980s, partly because prominent psychoanalysts had emigrated to the United States after World War II. At a time when lithium was becoming established everywhere else. In the United States, interest in lithium was only starting to build in the 1960s. In 1960, Samuel Gershon, who was a, an Australian psychiatrist, came to the University of Michigan for a one-year schizophrenia research fellowship. He was familiar with the research of Eric Trotner and knew about lithium and spread that to his colleagues at at the University of Michigan. And later in 1963, he immigrated to the United States and played a great role in bringing awareness to lithium in the United States. By the 1960s, word of mouth had spread about lithium and physicians were inundating the FDA with INDs which were permits to use an investigational new drug from the FDA. Many psychiatrists were prescribing lithium without even seeking INDs. And by 1970, it became apparent that the FDA had to approve lithium. So lithium continues to be underutilized in the United States. And one of the reasons is that there are other agents that can be used for the treatment of bipolar disorder including Depakote, which was approved in 1995, and the second-generation antipsychotics that followed. And pharmaceutical companies have a vested interest in pushing these drugs. Yeah, I I completely agree. I think anecdotally, I see atypical antipsychotics being used more often than lithium, or atypical antipsychotics and Depakote being used more often than lithium. And that's despite having, at best, equivalent evidence and at worst, like actually not as good of outcomes as lithium. I mean, lithium is a drug that really kind of needs its own evangelist. I mean, this story highlights that perfectly. There are vested interests in increasing the amount of atypical antipsychotics and and Depakote being prescribed. Like it actively benefits pharmaceutical companies. Whereas lithium is like, it's, it is manufactured by pharmaceutical companies, but it doesn't really rake in a lot of profits. It's extremely cheap. Um, we know it's effective. 
but it just it doesn't have that much power in the market, um, which is really sad just because it, again, has great evidence. I want to foreshadow our next episode by mentioning Dr. Steve Wangel, who is a geriatric psychiatrist here at University of Nebraska Medical Center, a fellow history buff, and a mentor to us both. Mm -hmm. Dr. Wangel was a resident in the 1980s, and he recalls that back then lithium was still marketed as brand name products, Lithobid and Escalith, and that there were pharmaceutical companies back then um, that would come and market various psychiatric medications, but that doesn't really happen anymore. And over the years, anecdotally, people around him have been prescribing less lithium as these other options came up. Um, And even though doctors deny that they are being influenced by marketing like this, there has been research that shows how individual prescribing practices are influenced by detailing, which is the one-on-one sales technique of educating doctors on new products. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, doctors are only human, and that definitely makes sense that there's like subliminal messaging that gets through and influences practice. Yeah, and in in addition to the effectiveness for the treatment of acute mania and maintenance therapy for bipolar disorder, lithium treats unipolar depression and is one of the few psychotropic medications that research has shown to reduce suicidality. Mm. Yeah, and in fact, I remember seeing research that there's a consistent decrease in suicide rates in areas that have higher levels of lithium in their drinking water. Um, So that kind of goes to that same point. Uh, It's also been shown to be neuroprotective. So in patients who have bipolar disorder and are given lithium, that actually have lower rates of going on to develop Alzheimer's dementia. I think this episode on lithium really highlights why we are doing this podcast. Mm. In order to understand the evidence and the research for lithium currently, you have to understand the history of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, this has been a really interesting discussion, so thank you for telling me about the history of lithium. Thank you for listening to the History of Madness podcast. If you like this episode, be sure to check out our other episodes on your podcast platform of choice. And while you're there, give us a like and leave a review. It really helps us grow the show. Thanks for listening and stay well. Thank you.